Hello, it's me, Jesse. No Katie today. I am here to present you with an interview I did with Ben Burgess, a philosopher and writer who also does a lot of debates and other good stuff online. He recently published a book called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. As you can probably gather from the title, that critique centers on uh, fixation on certain fights that Ben thinks are counterproductive to the left. We had a very good conversation about his book, about Joe Rogan, about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. You're listening to this in the free Blockton Reported feed. Uh, so you'll hear the whole interview, 60 minutes, you'll hear maybe 40 minutes of it. If you want to hear the rest, you got to become a premium subscriber. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Reported. Our premium subscribers, our patrons are the reason this interview exists, or the reason I had the time to read Ben's book and talk to him about it and put together this interview. They really keep the ship running. I might be mixing metaphors there. Do ships run? Who cares? Anyway, if you're interested in joining, patreon.com slash reported For $5 a month or more, you get at least three extra episodes a month. Those are normal episodes with me and Katie, not interview episodes. This is just a bonus on top of the bonus uh, and all sorts of other perks. We have more than 5,000 patrons so far. It's a great community. I hope you will consider joining, but either way, enjoy this interview. Uh, I I am okay. I'm actually a little uh, a little disturbed by this news. I don't know that you saw the uh, New York Post broke this story. Um, Bernie Sanders apparently is a maniac, like kind of like a rock star Caligula kind of figure. He uh, <laughs> uh, he'd go to hotel rooms, and there was like a list of demands uh, that his staff was uh, was prepared to demand of all the hotels uh, wait that, let me let me just guess before you continue okay uh, quarter pound of fresh locks <laughs> uh yeah so apparently uh he demanded a a king size bed and that the temperature be set to 60 to 60 yeah. wait okay that's actually psychotic that is very <laughs> cold for a hotel well i guess he's he's not from vermont but he he lived there long enough that he wanted sort of a I guess that's like a, the height of Burlington summer temperature. Yeah, yeah. And he um, apparently sometimes uh, he'd go so far as to open up a window to get the temperature down to 60. <laughs> that's really crazy. Uh, wow. Well, he really I, – uh, I can no longer support him in light of these, these revelations. Yeah. No, I mean I, I think that um, – yeah, I mean, like apparently, uh, like an elderly Jewish man has strong preferences about uh, about the conditions <laughs> in which he wants to sleep. So, <laughs> really defying, really defying stereotypes there. Yeah. Well, Ben, I know, I know that we could because of your burning hatred of Bernie Sanders, we could talk about this for hours. But instead, you have a new book out called "Canceling Comedians While the World Burns: A Critique of the Contemporary Left." <sighs> The only reason I could come up with that you would critique the left is that you are a reactionary. Is this true? Yeah. No, more or less. I, I think, um, yeah, that's that's my main criticism of the left in the uh, in the book uh, that uh, they advocate things that uh, that I don't want. You know that that I would uh, uh, that I would prefer that we continue to have private health care and you know that the United States continue to fight wars all around the world and so on and. Uh, and my my criticism of the left is that they're way too effective in trying <laughs> to bring about these uh, these these goals, as we've seen. Um, so, I mean, I did feel slightly attacked by your book because if people on the left stopped paying attention and obsessing over dumb bullshit online, that would really hurt blocked and reported. Did you consider that at all? 
Uh, no, no, I didn't. I, I mean, I guess this should actually be like one of those healthcare plans that includes like transition and job retraining for people who uh, work for private insurance companies. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> train, like, uh, train us to become like coal miners in West Virginia. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, look, it's it's a really good book and obviously tied into a lot of themes we talk about on this show. To me, one of the most important um, uh, themes is – this idea of like of leftism or the left as like a mass movement versus a clubhouse. What, mm-hmm. what do you mean when you talk about people who seem to treat it as a clubhouse? Yeah. So in thinking about a lot of the different pathologies, the left that I'm criticizing in the book, uh, which, you know, which would certainly include uh, an extreme eagerness to uh, for, for people to denounce each other over trivial differences uh, like certain kinds of strange performative radicalism, uh, and uh, and a lot, you know, and a lot of other behavior, you know, along uh, along these lines, and what they all have in common, and where they might come from. While I'm sure this is not monocausal, if it were, it would probably be much less of a problem than it uh, than it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I still think that a big part of the story is that. Any kind of political position to the left of liberalism uh, has been uh, like way out in the wilderness in American political life uh, for a very long time. Uh, you know, even people uh, like Bernie Sanders uh, or, you know, like in Britain, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who I'd regard as good, honorable social Democrats, uh, you know, like spent the vast majority of their political lives uh, as very marginal backbenchers and anything, you know, more radical than that was completely off the table. And I think under those circumstances, it's very easy to start to see left politics less as a concrete project to, to change the world uh, than as a kind of symbolic moral stand against the many very real injustices uh, around us. And one of the problems with that is that to the extent that you're thinking of it like that, that you're, you're taking this, this symbolic moral stand, I think you stop worrying about how to, what you might be doing that might be alienating, you know, many of the people that you'd like to try to reach. And if anything, you know, your incentives become the opposite. You know, you want to start worrying about other people diluting the value of your stand uh, by pretending that they're taking it, but you know, not not taking it for real or not taking it enough, uh, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that very often uh, there's this kind of insistence on you know it's on creating this uh, eternal series of tests for people who say that you're on they're on your side, right? So like. Uh, don't just like, it's not good enough that, you know, that you just say like, we should really demilitarize policing and, uh, and we should, should build a really strong welfare state to try to alleviate, you know, the social pathologies of poverty, you know, in a less carceral way, uh, because that way too many people might nod along. You haven't really separated the wheat from the chaff. You know, if you say that we need to abolish the police, uh, then like that, that'll really, that'll really get it done. Right. That'll really tell you who's willing to, you know, who, who should be allowed into the clubhouse, because if you're willing to say that without, you know, of course, having any answers to follow up questions about what that means or how that would work, uh, you know, like that proves that you're truly committed. Whereas, you know, that, that other thing, you know, that, that's, that sounds a little bit like you might care what other people think. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the examples I, I was glad you went into some depth about of this sort of purity testing and like counterproductive symbolic bullshit basically is uh, you had a situation where Joe Rogan, um, you know, in his politically slightly tangled way, basically said he, he was very attracted to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders ended up going on Joe Rogan. So you have a situation where the leftiest political candidate in forever goes on one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Uh, and the response was not widespread celebration. Yes, we're winning, right? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and so Bernie Sanders uh, went on Joe Rogan and slightly afterwards, in fact, just before the Iowa caucus at like the ideal moment for this to happen, uh, Joe Rogan said in, you know, in a very Joe Rogan-ish way, like, yeah, you know, I, I think I'll probably vote for this guy. I like him. And uh, then, well, not Bernie, because I'm I'd be shocked if he knows how to use a computer. But uh, one of his <laughs> uh, staffers, presumably, you know, read his Twitter account. Uh, no, Bernie hopped right on the Joe Rogan Experience subreddit from one of his many <laughs> accounts and DM yeah. the mods. I was like, "Can you put me in touch with Joe?" <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, the Bernie Sanders, you know, Twitter account uh, put out like this little video uh, where they clipped uh, the part of. Um, you know, the uh, the part of the Joe Rogan experience episode where Rogan says uh, that he thinks he'll probably vote for uh, for Bernie. And actually, it's it's worth taking a second on this because at the beginning of the clip, Rogan says, well, look, uh, any human being, if you take them at their worst moments, uh, you can construct a story about, you know, how bad they are. But with Bernie, he really doesn't seem to have a lot of worse moments. And then it goes on to praise, you know, Bernie's record and his sincerity and all that stuff. It was like a 60 second clip. And uh, and it was something that I think it would have been political malpractice for them not to put out because, right. uh, you know, you have possibly the most popular podcaster in the world with a vast audience of people who are not guaranteed to vote in Democratic primaries uh, saying uh, that he, he supports your guy. Uh, and, and by the way, not least part of the argument that the Bernie campaign was was making was that. Uh, the re- one reason their candidate was particularly good is that there are people who would be inspired to vote for him who wouldn't necessarily vote for any random Democrat, uh, which which this seems to uh, this you know this seems to confirm. Uh, but a lot of people got very mad uh, at the fact that maybe that Bernie had gone on in the first place. Definitely that he had touted that was a word I saw a lot touted uh, the endorsement of this terrible problematic person Joe Rogan by tweeting out that video clip. And a lot of this, of course, was ginned up by bad faith actors, supporters of other candidates. But I saw a lot of uh, people with that Democratic Socialist Red Rose emoji in their Twitter handle who were going along with this saying, yeah, no, this this is really pretty bad. Uh, you know, Bernie, Bernie should not have touted the endorsement of this person. Uh, there are people in left media uh, who, are, uh, who are saying things like that. There is a the co-host of a fairly popular left-wing podcast who was getting mad at me a few weeks ago um, over, over what I wrote about this example, I guess, in the book. Uh, although also Michael Brooks and I wrote an article about it for, uh, for Jacobin at the time. Uh, and this strikes me as it's a small example, but as a really, really telling one, because if your goal is to get as many people as possible to vote for you so you win and uh, then you can you know you could achieve some of your stated political aims uh, or at least get closer to them 
then this would be unambiguously good news. Uh, but instead, uh, you saw all these people, well, uh, taking, you know, doing what Rogan had said at the beginning of the clip and taking, uh, putting together some of his worst moments from all of the hundreds of years of, uh, well, not hundreds of years, sorry, hundreds, hundreds of hours. Of Rogan yeah. is an ancient podcasting force. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been podcasting this since the 17th century. And uh, for a lot of those centuries, he was high. So, you know, he's, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so he, uh, he said some stupid things over the years. Uh, yeah. I mean, even in the decade or whatever that he really has been, been doing it, uh, he, he has done, you know, whatever, God knows how many hours of, uh, of podcasting. You can certainly find objectionable things that he said that really are objectionable. You can also things, find things that sound objectionable if you clip 10 seconds of them. Uh, right. and you know, in one case there's, there's a, there's a, a joke that he made that was included in one of these clip montages, that literally, if you watch 10 seconds later after where the clip cuts off, uh, he says, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That's dumb. Uh, it was like a, a racist joke, basically. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was, it was a racist joke. And I, I and I think that, like, literally 10 seconds after he made it, it was like, yeah, that was kind of racist, wasn't it? Never mind. So, so, did, did, you, did you ever find, you know, not internet randos, but the bigger name people making this argument, did you ever find anyone who could answer the obvious follow-up question of, how is your belief that he shouldn't have touted the endorsement of Joe Rogan or gone on compatible with winning the presidency in a country like the United States? Not really. No. Uh, and I think that the argument that they would make was that you're uh, throwing or, you know, I was, or Michael and I were uh, throwing trans people under the bus uh, by uh, by saying that it was okay to you know to have this you know be in an alliance uh, with with this person who uh, who was a uh, who was a transphobe, which by the way, um, in the greater spectrum of, of transphobia, I think Joe Rogan is actually not that bad. Like if anything, I think we might have uh, slightly overstated how bad he was in the article. Uh, you know, I, I think that he. Um, you know, he certainly has, you know, positions that some people on the left would disagree with about, uh, about the, you know, sports issue. Uh, but you know, he, he doesn't generally go around rampantly misgendering people or anything like that. Uh, this is, this is an issue I've never written about, so I, I don't know anything about it, of course, but yeah, 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 uh, yeah. he also, he did, he did have Abigail Schreier on who is controversial and we're not going to discuss this further. I just want to make sure we give the steel man <laughs> version. Although, you know what? Sorry. At the time of the controversy, he had not yet had Abigail Schreier on. So, yeah. so strike that. Yeah. So so it's it's also so okay. So first of all, I think that his actual positions are not that bad. I think that in the course of advocating those positions, you know, he's he's made some insensitive comments. Uh, I think there are other places that you can watch him talk about it, and you know, it's pretty decent. But also, let's assume for the sake of argument that his positions were much worse than they were. Yeah. I would understand the objection a little bit if this were some sort of process by which, like in a European country, you would form a coalition government and he had demanded as a condition of his support that Bernie, uh, you know, take worse positions on trans rights issues uh, that, you know, they said, no, I'll, I'll no longer fund, uh, you know, hormone therapy as, as part of Medicare for all or something like that. Right. Uh, but of course, nothing like that happened. Uh, this no. is uh, like. Bernie Sanders had, had by far the most, you know, pro-trans, you know, positions 
of uh, of anyone in the race. This made it slightly more likely that he was going to be elected. Uh, it seems like if you care about that issue, this is an unambiguous positive. And at the risk of sounding too uh, fuzzy and hippie-ish, I would also question whether the best way when people really do have uh, problematic attitudes – I would question whether the best way to convince them that they're wrong is to yell at them and denounce them and shun them and refuse to have anything to do with them. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so definitely agreement there. I mean, I guess part my I have trouble. Many of the people who made those arguments about Bernie going on Rogan, I have trouble believing they actually hold any stable beliefs on this stuff because there was a fair amount of overlap between the people who made those arguments, but who then, if you tried to make a big deal over um, – you know, uh, Tamika Mallory of the Women's March and her associations with Farrakhan, who mm-hmm. had said literally mm-hmm. eliminationist anti-Semitic remarks, then, no, 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 it's much more complicated than that. You don't understand. It feels like this is all just in-group, out-group, tribal bullshit, and and no one actually has, like, firmly held principles on this stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably true, that, like, you would, that this kind of, uh, this kind of guilt by association uh, is um, is something that's that's attractive to uh, to a lot of people when they can you know when they can use it opportunistically, and they they rightly reject it as as nonsense uh, in you know when uh, uh, you know when it's uh, you know when it's not useful because uh, you know like again what I would really question is what what's the goal right what what are you trying to achieve yeah. uh, because. If we were actually faced with some sort of choice about like which positions we could turn into political reality, uh, be, you know that there were some trade-offs that we had to make. Well, I mean, I think that's a discussion you have to be prepared to have. I think anybody who's serious about power at some point uh, has to be willing to you know make some hard decisions about which of their uh, political goals to um, uh, to trade off uh, in exchange for uh, for which others. Uh, but that. Because that wasn't even operative here, right? There, there, there's no, there's no trade-off. It, it's purely on the level of uh, of symbolism and signaling. And the fact is that that Joe Rogan is not like. I think that if you go around and just like knock on ten doors at random. And, you know, whatever, I guess if you did that, probably nine of them would think it was a weird exercise. They wouldn't talk to you. But, you know, if you if you knocked on some doors at random until you found 10 people who would have a detailed conversation with you about all of their political views, eight of them would pro- would at least be no better, right, than, than no. the Rogan. Well, well, and as you're saying, I mean, you know, I, Rogan has, if you take various clips of his, there are clips I agree with completely. He had like a really wonderful clip about about immigration and, mm-hmm. and this idea of, of slamming the door on fucking Guatemalan migrants trying to get here and just build a better life. He's also said stuff I disagree with. Um, the amount of, of just highly visible contempt heaped on him and his listeners by a certain set of people is striking to me because I think America has has far more like Joe Rogans than hyper partisans on either side. And I no, think that's part of Yeah, I think that's yeah. exactly right. Like I think that uh I think Rogan uh without exaggerating his every manness, right? I think he's a very specific kind of dude, right? You know, uh but uh, he's one of those one an every man with a hundred million dollars. So first yeah, so yeah, that's one thing. He is wildly more uh economically successful than almost anybody, but also 
you know, also I think in terms of personality type, whatever, you know, there's there's a there's there's a there's definitely a type. I've known lots of people who fit and he fits it. But I think even more generally, like I think that somebody like Rogan, he doesn't have uh he has political instincts, he has political reactions to things. Uh, but he's at least as interested in psychedelics and mixed martial arts and, you know, yeah. half, half a dozen other subjects as he is in politics. And I think like most people, uh, he hasn't spent so much time thinking about all of his different political impulses and reactions that they've cohered together into a consistent worldview. Because the truth is that you you have to be kind of a strange person to have thought about it that much. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 in our circles, you you're a strange person if you haven't thought about that much, or if you don't attend to like these these tribal signals of what you're supposed to believe or or what shows you're supposed to go on. Yeah, no, exactly. So I I, I mean I think that most people are a little all over the place, uh, and if you can appeal to people who maybe have. Uh, you know, like very progressive takes on some things and, you know, they have moments of, you know, being kind of reactionary and other things. Uh, if you can appeal to them and get them to uh, to support you as you uh, run on a platform that's unambiguously progressive, that that seems like from the perspective of achieving those goals, that seems like the best possible outcome. Yeah, I always wish we could run a. I'm I'm so um, torn on the question of how much persuasion matters at the national mm-hmm. level. Obviously, it matters a little. We've seen huge sea change in support for gay marriage, for example. But like when I, when you look at the messaging decisions some or powerful organizations make on like, um, you know, I have no idea if this is true, but I wonder if the if the conversation on abortion was different and, mm-hmm. and polling suggests most people are neither radically pro reproductive rights nor radically anti. Mm-hmm. Um, the specific storylines we, meaning progressives in the left, have chosen of like, no, it's literally just like any other health procedure, which I, right. I don't think maps onto most people's intuitions. I wish we yeah, could right. run a simulation where we gave like a more nuanced, like, no, we're balancing rights, but we think on balance, um, maybe that that would bounce off people because they need a more straightforward message. I just, I, I'm so curious about how it's decided which messaging to use. And I'm not sure that's always a scientific process. No, I mean it's it's definitely yes, it's it's definitely. I understated not, that immensely. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not a scientific uh, process, and and it is and it is like it is a little random. Uh, what which view, which issues at which times uh, you're expected to uh, to be completely unambiguous uh, about uh, as. Like not just a you know condition of people thinking that you're right, but you know, but as a condition of people uh, being willing to uh, to have anything to do with you, or you know, or not seeing it as a kind of like some level of uh, of political treason, you know, for uh, for you to um, for you to be somebody who's seen as part of a coalition, or you know, or or is, who's uh, supporting you, right? Like, I mean, and, and this is not, I mean, this is just. And that's just a general comment on uh, everybody, right? I mean, that's not specific uh, to uh, to the left. I mean, certainly, you know, if you, I mean, there are centrists who uh, who you know who had a problem with the Bernie Joe Rogan thing, uh, but who were had no problem apparently with Joe Biden inviting Rick Snyder to uh, to speak at the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, uh, you know, as a union busting Republican governor who had uh, you know who had committed. Uh, extreme criminal negligence, you know, with the water supply in Flint. Well, well, but it's not just that. Uh, 
there are all these sort of culture war roads. I don't want I don't want to see a trap there. But I, I wrote about this. I was very struck by the uh, whatever you think of the Tom Cotton op ed mm-hmm. and this re- this reaction to it, where obviously this op ed put Black Stafford's lives in danger. This yeah, was yeah, the yeah. media story for weeks and weeks. Not long after this blow up. The, the, just to, re, if anyone doesn't remember, he argued that the um, the military should be dispatched to U.S. cities where looting and rioting had gotten out of control. He did not say they should like mow down peaceful protesters. Not long after that, the military is deployed to Kenosha. Like the thing they were afraid would kill people happened, and there wasn't a peep. And there's this thing where it just feels like everyone is being yoked along by whatever their friends are mad about, rather than like. If you hold the principled position, the U.S. military should not be deployed in these circumstances. Shouldn't you be mad when that actually happens? Shouldn't that make you even madder than just a column suggesting that? Yeah. And and the thing is, I mean, look, I think that the the content of that cotton op-ed uh, was disturbing. I think if you um, – if you know, not necessarily because every single deployment of the military was going to lead to disastrous consequences, uh, but generally because it was written at a time when uh, there, when uh, I, I think that there was already a lot of uh, extreme, you know, like pretty extreme, uh, you know, police violence uh, in uh, in reaction to uh, to protests. Uh, you know, there there are you know there are many instances. Of of people who who were peaceful protesters, uh, and you know, might in some cases not have been, you know, might have been, you know, might have been rioting, but you know, but in many cases were peaceful protesters, or even journalists covering protests, yeah. uh, who uh, who were you know tear gassed, beaten, you know, uh, people shot with rubber bullets, uh, and so the idea that it should be escalated, no matter how many qualifications there are in the op-ed saying, Oh, but you know, but I don't want anything bad to happen to, you know, peaceful protests. I think, I think what he's suggesting and how it would have played out, uh, if you, know, you if there had been those sort of mass deployments, uh, to, uh, to cities, uh, you know, would, would have been, would have been pretty bad, right? Like, like I, yeah, there's I, a principled argument you can make against the Yeah. I, I'm, I'm firmly against like what, uh, you know what Khan was 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 saying in that op-ed, uh, and and maybe even more against the sort of I think the impulse that he was playing to by by writing it, but also I think it's insane and self defeating that the reaction to it was what it was uh, that uh, there was all of this opposition to running it in the first place that, uh, that in fact there was so much opposition from within the New York times that the editor who signed off on it, uh, had to, uh, had to resign. And I, I think that the idea that, you know, the way to stop, uh, the, the way to sort of counter this, this argument that cotton is making is to stop people from being able to say it in the New York times. Whereas, I, I do know that obviously there is like every society is going to manufacture consent on something sometimes, right? There's nothing, right. You, you're never going to get to a point where literally every view on every topic is expressible in mainstream outlets. You know, you, you couldn't write a legalized pedophilia uh, op-ed in the New York times, but believe, believe me, I've tried. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm sure your, your many submissions, you know, were, uh, were rejected, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, though, I think that the fact that this is so many progressive people's impulse 
is to say, oh, uh, the, the bad thing was publishing it, you know, should have tried to stop it from being published, I think is a, is a bad sign. And I think it's also just not serious uh, when it comes to how to counter these ideas, because if there's one thing that that kind of like manufacturing consent, setting the limits of acceptable discourse thing is not going to be effective at, it's countering an idea that is already like adamantly held by like half of the public. Like that's, that's not going to yeah. work. You know, like there were, there were, op, there were polls happening at the time that he put out that op-ed showing that over 50%, you know, of, uh, of the public, uh, like 56 or 58% in some polls uh, wanted the military to uh, to be to be sent to, to cities. The president, including, of the United- yeah, including I think 37% of black people. Although the way the question was polled was slightly, he was saying uh, the federal government should be able to override governors, which is a little bit psychotic. But it was basically the same idea, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, I think the core and I think the core of the objection wasn't so much about the prerogatives of governors anyway. Uh, So like this was this was already a wildly popular idea. The president of the United States was saying things like like it at the time. Uh, The idea that you're going to be able to put this back in the box by just not printing it uh, doesn't really make sense to me on that level. Uh, and I, I think it just it just makes it look like it made people who disagreed with it look like they were weak and not confident in their their ability to uh, uh, to to win that argument. In fact, it's the worst of all worlds because the op-ed was published. Uh, so if you're worried about it getting out, that happened. But then after that, uh, the editor had to step down, which sent the message: Oh, look, they're afraid of you know they're afraid of these dangerous ideas. Uh, being being spoken out loud because they have uh, they have no answer to it, which is which is a disaster all around. I mean, like when they, th- I mean, if I had my way, uh, they would have uh, they would have definitely published it because again, no point trying to put that idea back in the box at that point. And also, it's newsworthy that a U.S. senator is saying that. Uh, and then uh, and then, but then, like, why not just publish that and publish like an op-ed by Cornell West next to it? Yeah. Like like that, you know, that seems like it would have been a better approach. I think there's this unfortunate thing going on, not just there, but but in elsewhere, where because, you know, the media is mostly progressive, uh, people think like if we just don't acknowledge certain things, they'll go away. I mean, there was, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to go back and check, but there was like actually a fair amount of of rioting and property damage last summer. I didn't, I don't think I realized the scope of it, it at the time, but you know, it was like one to two billion dollars of damage, which, you know, it's not it's not a disastrous hurricane, but it's not nothing. And I just wonder, like the average media consumer in one of these cities where clearly some bad shit is going down. Like right. and then to see this all this constant hedging, well, mostly nonviolent, mostly this, mostly that. I, I just I don't know. It, it just seems like there's this re- reality denying impulse. And you can definitely form a world where every progressive outlet toes the party line and pretends this or that isn't happening, but that's not going to, it's in the long run, that's not going to do you any favors. Cause I think the average person is not going to be fooled. No, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be convincing in, in the long term. Uh, and, and I think that, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, of right wing, uh, hysteria, uh, about that, uh, that, that kind of elevates, uh, you know, elevates property damage to, you know, to an existential crisis that it, uh, you know, that, that it really wasn't. Uh, and, and I think there are a lot of nuanced things that you could say about that, that I would, I would agree with. 
but also, I guess, you know, going into my own, you know, sort of back from the sort of general fuzzy boundaries of media, you know, progressivism, you know, whatever exactly that means to, uh, to my particular corner of the, of the political spectrum. It's also, I don't know. I mean, I also saw like some, some weirdo kind of insurrectionary fantasism about it. Uh, that's like, oh, look, you know, this is amazing. You know, somebody, you know, burned down a police station in Minneapolis, you know, it's like the revolution. Uh, and, and I think that in the, in the long term, uh, that's, that's going to be a very losing message, uh, among everybody, uh, that you, that you want to, uh, that you want to appeal to, uh, well, not, not, not just that, but like people, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to point us back toward the broader media thing and then we can move on to more specific book stuff, but I want to run this by you. Um, Federal courthouse in Portland, downtown Portland, has been attacked repeatedly. Fires yeah. set inside the perimeter fence. They they, they breached it at one point. Um, I think the average American understands that if if forgive me for saying this, uh, if right wing protesters attacked a federal courthouse, that would be a month long. The only thing progressive media talked about that just seems to me to obviously be true. And I'm not saying it went uncovered, but I'm saying there's just there's this clear imbalance in how these acts are covered. And you do need to put them in context. We are nowhere near the level of political violence of like the 60s or of many other countries in 2021. I just I don't I increasingly don't really have answers to conservatives who are like, I don't trust progressive media to tell these stories in a fair way. I mean, what am I missing here? Uh, no, I mean, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that the most insightful thing that I've personally read about this, uh, or like sort of what's, what's going on here, uh, is, uh, you know, Matt Taibbi's book, hate Inc, uh, where, you know, what Taibbi is really emphasizing, um, is the, uh, the economic dimension of how media gets to be this way, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I'm going to do the book in 45 seconds. So I'm sure I'm flattening lots of stuff here, but, uh, that roughly that traditional media has, you know, without exaggerating its collapse, uh, certainly declined considerably. And, uh, part of the effect of that is that, uh, whatever sort of audience, you know, you have left, which, you know, might be massive, you know, like, you know, from a, you know, podcaster's perspective or something, but it's certainly nothing compared to the nation tuning in to see what Walter Cronkite said about Vietnam or whatever, right. uh, that whatever audience you have left at any particular news outlet, the, the material incentive becomes to just pander to what they want to hear. Uh, yeah. the, uh, so if it's, if it's Fox news, you know, they, they, you know, then you spend all of your time, try to scare old people in a Fox news sort of way. Uh, and if it's MSNBC, then, you know, maybe, uh, you're, you're catering to a different set of prejudices. One that is not, um, you know, like might be, uh, that, you know, like might be like anti Bernie, for example, but is also going to, be one that plays up any sort of acts of uh, political violence committed by, by Republicans, uh, January 6th, uh, which is honestly, I think in retrospect, a, um, 
pretty minor riot. Uh, the the rioters didn't actually try to kill anyone. But that, but you get in so again when when I say you get in trouble for saying that, I mean assholes on Twitter will yell at you. But but what has I found stifling is like it feels like there isn't rhetorical space to be like, wow, that was really fucked up. That said, we know from thousands of years of human history that when actual insurrectionists breach like a a seat of power they take hostages or kill people. They don't just like walk out when the police show up. This, this clearly was not quite at the level that some people are continuing to hype it up. No, no, it's not at all. I mean, I, it's, uh, I wrote a, uh, yeah, I wrote an article, uh, about this, uh, for, well, I wrote one for, uh, for Jacobin with, with Daniel Bessner, who's a historian, uh, talking about why it doesn't really make sense to call this a fascist uh, coup attempt, and one for uh, and one for the the nation uh, about why it was short sighted uh, for uh, for leftists to support using draconian legal theories to punish every single person who breached the Capitol, yeah, uh, to uh, to the fullest extent of the law. And you know, I definitely had a few responses. You know, people who who basically assumed that I was a Trump supporter. You know, because I said that. Uh, but it, it's not, yeah. I mean, it like, it is crazy that in so much of the liberal imagination, January 6th, it's like, um, it's become this like all it's, it's become this like thing. It's like the insurrection, capital T, capital I is this defining historical event. Uh, when actually, uh, uh, the main evidence for intention for kidnapping uh, was that uh, somebody had their picture taken with zip ties, uh, which turned out to be a bartender who was there with his mom, uh, who uh, picked <laughs> up some zip ties that were, you know, like uh, that were like left or lost by a cop uh, and had his uh, had his picture taken. Uh, There's no longer part of any part of the charges uh, against him. Okay, I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger there. If you want to hear the rest of the interview, specifically Ben talking about some Democratic Socialists of America drama and class stuff as it pertains to contemporary leftism and uh, tankies. There's tanky talk too. If you want to hear that good stuff, please go to patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Thanks again for listening.